Today on TechNATO, we'll be joined by Joe Stewart-Rattray, all the way from Australia, to talk about ISACA. We'll also be talking about some updates from the CenturyLink outage in 2018 and a ransomware attack that's sweeping Texas towns. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNATO. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, joined, as always, by Justin Dennison. Hello, everyone. Pointed at the right guy this time. And Don Pazette, how you doing? Hola. Como esta usted? Sure. Uh, <laughs> sorry I did not wear red today, gentlemen. Uh, it's red shirt day. Solidarity. This is the only red shirt I own. And again, the people just listening on audio are saying, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. But if we're ever on an away team, you're the only one left, Peter. Yep. Perfect. All right. Uh, so uh, we've got a lot of news to get to today. We also have a great interview coming up all the way. I think this is our long, our furthest interview away uh, so far. It's all the way from Australia. Um, Joe Stewart Retre from uh, Isaka. She was a uh, an international board member, uh, and she's actually done some work with the UN. Uh, works with Isaka's organization. Uh, she leads tech. So. Uh, a lot of cool stuff that we'll talk about with her, about women in tech, about Isaka in general, what they're up to, uh, and all of those great things. But first, uh, we want to get to the news. As we are uh, looking at the news, we're going to be playing Buzzword Bingo, as always. Uh, so head over to go.itpro.tv slash buzzword bingo. Print out your handy-dandy card like ours here. And uh, I don't think we've said anything. Is this Isaka? Yeah, no, that's not a good. keyword. Yeah, all right. But uh, I'm sure we'll get to some in... This first article, which is over on ArsTechnica.com, how malformed packets cause CenturyLink's 37-hour nationwide outage. The FCC blasts CenturyLink for December 2018 outage, but issues no punishment, which is always what we talk about here. On Technado, there are never any consequences when you do things. Not, bad. not any real consequences, and you know we we reported on this back in December. So you know malform, blah, malformed packets got in behind the scenes on CenturyLink's network. Their routers weren't able to handle it, and it just basically broke things down. So it was a big bad scene. What I thought was really interesting about the follow-up articles, though, is the FCC finished their investigation and they started releasing some details. For example, the one that really hit here is that during this outage. Uh, at least 886 calls to 911 were unable to be completed. And so that shows the danger of having a system like this. And, you know, my wife and I have been talking about this at home where we do not have a landline anymore, right? We just have cell phones. But if you have an extended power outage and you can't charge your phone, then now you just have no phone. Like, people aren't getting landlines run in anymore. Or they do a digital line via their cable or DSL and and then assume that that's going to work in a power outage situation, and it's not. So having just basic 911 functionality is really, really super-duper important. And CenturyLink, you really put a lot of people at risk for over 24 hours. Fortunately, uh, you know, Ajit Pai, he came out and said this is completely unacceptable, which means he's not going to tolerate it. And now we've learned what that means, which is you're going to get a very, very stern letter, UN style, uh, in the event that you <laughs> don't support the uh, population. Yeah, well, local residents have been encouraged to try one of the other monopolies in their yes, area. Yes, you, so. you got to shop. Yeah. shop Real around. quick question. Can't you get in trouble for doing fake calls to 911? Like, sure. you won't, wouldn't... Is is this a chargeable offense? I guess is this something well, that I would actually? They didn't make get, fake like, calls. They just didn't make right. But I'm just saying, if I can get in trouble for that, 
How can you not get any punishment? Well, no, for... that's because you're a person. Oh, but aren't corporations people? No, if you were a Depends. mega conglomerate, you'd be fine. Oh, so I just need to, I need to change my birth certificate into an Articles of uh, Incorporation. Yes. I oh, gotcha, gotcha. And, and then you'd be fine. Yeah. All right. Then and you're, then, then I could just person, shut down whatever I want to. You're a person when it suits you, and you're a company when it, when it suits you. Yeah, yeah. For that. You're actually allowed to enslave people. Ah, well, there wow. you go. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just, just went off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And this is article number one. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about the United States this time. <laughs> hey, America. Uh, no, that sounds good. I will uh, file my articles of incorporation very soon. Um, all right. This one, this next article over at the International Business Times. Uh, Cisco lays off. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to like Cisco lays off 2019 <laughs> people. No, Cisco layoffs 2019 because they're expecting. You know, the sequel next year. Uh, 500 lose jobs in engineering at San Jose and Milpitas. Yeah, I don't know how to say that one. Uh, you know, this is a big deal. Cisco Cisco was really not doing well for a long time. Uh, you know, under John Chambers, the company did all sorts of weird things. They brought in a new CEO. The company kind of turned around and was making an, an uptick. And so it was really weird to hear about layoffs. And this is not the first time they've actually done other layoffs. I think the article lays out some of the other ones. Oh, here it was. Uh, 500 workers in 2018, 700 workers in 2017, 940 in 2016. So your 2019 number, it's, not, not it's actually more off. like 3,000 people over yeah. the last three years that they've let go. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of people. What does that mean to us, right? So as, as IT professionals, as people out there in the field, when you hear about a company like Cisco, the the market leader of networking, laying off that many people. Well, these are almost entirely engineers and hardware engineers. Cisco has pivoted into largely a software company now. So instead of going and buying a physical ASA firewall or a physical router, you, you're actually buying a VASA or a VIOS router, and it's a virtual machine you run on top of your own virtualization platform. On the hardware side, they're really only investing in switches these days because you know you can't virtualize a switch in any real way. I know the vSAN guys will tell you you can, but uh, you know switch port density is still important. So that hardware side of Cisco is changing super super fast, and for the engineers that work there, that's a problem. So you know, 500 lose jobs in San Jose, like in the the tech. Silicon Valley. We hear about all these IT jobs that are out there, but when it comes to hardware engineers, that pivot is so significantly different. Well, at least housing is cheap there, so they'll be able to, you know, have yeah, some they'll, time they'll, to find they'll land. New. They'll be yeah. fine. I'm sure they all wisely saved money and invested and so on sure. to, to be able to support not not working for a month or two. But uh, hopefully they'll just go on to find jobs with the other companies because there's you know, Extreme Networks, Palo Alto. There's a number of other mm -hmm. companies that are in Silicon Valley that make hardware still. And Cisco even claims that it will rehire some of those because it says that software engineers were part of that, even though it was predominantly hardware. So I'm wondering if maybe they're just like, oh, we're going to bring you back on if you want to or restructure. Um, that is still a lot of people. I know for those areas, maybe it's not as devastating, yeah. but I think in my hometown, 500 people, that would have been economically That's devastating. You know, years ago, it was Cisco's model where all of their software development was outsourced to India. And the software, every time a new version would come out, it was a whole new team that worked on it. And so the consistency stuff was super shoddy. It was really, really bad. Well, thanks to the big drive for cybersecurity, they can't really do that anymore, right? You can't have different teams creating different bugs that lead to different vulnerabilities. So they've brought a lot of that in-house, which means a lot more developers on the uh, the local side. 
So this is apparently the trade-off for that. They should have uh, subscribed to IT Pro TV and watched Justin's development content. Then they could have just trained the uh, the hardware people, move them over to uh, become software engineers. You know, I, I've wondered about that. I, I know you're, you're kind of joking half-heartedly, but uh, if you have somebody who's a hardware engineer, they, they've probably at least got a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, and they've worked in the field, they probably command a pretty good salary. To retrain them and move them over as like an entry-level developer, there's probably a pretty big salary cut. That's so I imagine true. they don't do that a lot. But if you're working in that hardware industry, it's time to evaluate options, I think. Apparently. In addition to, I feel like a junior-level salary is probably better than no salary. True. Yeah, but these guys, I mean, it's not like there aren't jobs for, for these folks. There might not be jobs you know, in the same town or something, but, you know, yeah. if you if you have that background at Cisco. The IoT world is exploding, and that's almost all custom boards these days, so, you know, they can certainly jump in there. Go to Texas Instruments or something like that. Go work with them. Mm-hmm. Where, where are they located? Texas. Okay. Um, <laughs> Texas, Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you can... Uh, Go work for Google. Uh, they're they're making big investments in hardware, uh, as we see over at the register.co.uk. Buying a Chromebook? Don't forget to check the best before date. Google's little-known auto-update expiration D-Day leaves users bereft of auto software refreshes and more. Here's how to check yours. So are you saying that my, my Chromebook will expire? Yes. Basically, yes. See, I, always, I always pull the one from the back. It's got like a couple days later. Expiration. So, so I'm I'm glad that you think the same thing. For some reason, I'm like this is like that food product that you bought that has like the the weird kind of half scratched out yeah, expert. You're like, I is that a twenty twenty four? Ah, it was a twenty sixteen. This has gone bad. It's well, weird when you like move stuff in your fridge. Like when you move homes, you're like. This ketchup expired <laughs> four years ago. Yeah. I'm still been eating it. I moved this twice. Yeah. The medicine cabinet. That's where you get in oh, real trouble. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's funny you mentioned the back of the shelf because in this case, there's a double dark secret from Google, and I'm not sensationalizing this one. Uh, so first off, most people didn't even know that the Chromebooks had a auto expiration or an auto update expiration. And, and if you don't know what that is, basically what it means is when you buy a Chromebook, it's running Chrome OS, and... Google manages it, right? So they push updates out to it. It updates automatically. You know, it, it really is just the Chrome web browser, and that's that, right? Well, it is running Linux under the hood, and so it's got to have Linux updates. Well, when you buy a cell phone and it's running Android or iOS, you only expect to get updates for a certain period of time. But when you buy a laptop, you kind of expect the operating system to be supported for a long time. And if it isn't, then you can always just switch over and throw a Linux distro on there. And you know, you've always got some way to run a supported operating system on your hardware. Well, turns out Google is treating the Chromebooks like a cell phone. And they've basically got an arbitrary date of about six and a half years that is applied to Chromebooks. And it says, after this period of time, we'll no longer push updates. And not just automatic, we'll no longer push updates at all to that Chromebook. So when you hit that auto-update expiration or AUE date, that's it. Your your operating system is frozen in that manner just for the rest of the time you run it. So you can still use the Chromebook, but it's not going to get any updates. Including security updates? Including security yeah. updates. No updates, period. Now, where that creates a problem are, are two main places. So problem number one are security certificates, right? Uh, Chrome obviously has to keep track of trusted routes and so on, which... If those don't get updated, then you're going to run into situations where certificates aren't properly handled. The other problem is when they calculate that date from. It's not from the date of purchase. It's from the date 
that the very first one of that unit was manufactured. So if you buy a Chromebook that's already been on sale for three years, you're already halfway through your AUE window. So you're only going to get three years out of that device before you hit the end of it. And that's starting to happen to some people. uh, And that's how people learned about this. Like most people had no idea it existed. So the register had a pretty good write-up on that. I don't normally like the register very much, but uh, but they did go through and explain kind of how it works and even how you can check and see what the AUE is on your Chromebook. But the part that makes this really bad is, let's say you hit the end of the AUE, you can't just format your Chromebook and throw Linux on it. You you have to run Chrome OS. You're stuck, right? Uh, and they, for a little while, were supporting putting other OSs on there, but now Google doesn't do that anymore. Like you have that... Uh, What's it called? Crouton? Yeah, I think it's called Crouton. But Crouton, you're still running Chrome OS underneath it. You're running Crouton on top of Chrome OS. So you're you're really screwed. Like when you buy a Chromebook, they're cheap. And now we know they're really only good for six years. It's one of those things where reading this article, they said that the the idea of the first like manufactured on that platform was very ambiguous. So it might be, oh well, this computer's only been out two years. Oh well, that's actually part of this line, which has been out for four years. Ooh. You only have two years left. So it seems to be you need to check your computer. I wonder if you think it would be all right if I checked that, and then could I take it back if I was like, hey, this has only got two years left? Um, I'm going to imagine no, because like if they just swapped it with another one on the shelf, it would have the same exact problem, yeah. right? Yeah, no, you would think so. Yeah, yeah. this is weird. I'm surprised that no one has figured out how to, for lack of a better term, jailbreak a Chromebook where you, where you can put, you know. I think it's whatever. because they're cheap. And uh, honestly, most people aren't buying Chromebooks. Uh, yeah. you know, a lot of schools use them, and then people don't anticipate ever updating those, and schools are used to getting yeah. ripped off. But uh, for the rest of us, I mean, do you guys use Chromebooks? Uh, uh, my, my daughter has one because she wanted a you know, laptop for simple web browsing kind of stuff, and that's the cheap one. I actually thought about uh, getting something like that for my dad because most everything he does is just web browsing. It's not really anything else. Um, but no, I, I haven't purchased one for myself. Yeah, just yelling at people on Facebook. Yeah. Well, and, and so, you know, the people you're describing are ones who wouldn't even notice if the updates weren't happening. Just and true. so I could totally see three or four years from now, botnets made out mm-hmm. of Chromebooks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think Google's going to have to backtrack on this one a little bit. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Uh, all right, well, uh, another Google Lifespan article here on ZDNet.com. Google wants to reduce lifespan for HTTPS certificates to one year. A Google proposal would cut lifespan of SSL certificates from 825 days to 397 days. So um, I'm lost on this one, Don. All right, so uh, if you've been following the news on this, uh, there has practically been an all-out war on uh, extended validation certificates in the last just couple of weeks, really, but uh, definitely this year. Uh, one part of that is Google's push, uh, or you know, I say extended validation. It's really a tax on the various companies that sell SSL certificates, right? So when you go to buy an SSL certificate, they usually give you a choice about how long you want to buy it for, right? So if I go over, like we, we use Digicert. I, I, I like the guys over at Digicert. And if you go there, you can buy a one-year certificate or a two-year or even a three-year. And if you buy the three-year certificate, you save some money, right? So you're kind of encouraged to buy a three-year cert. But in the security industry, we always hear shorter is better. The longer a cert is valid for, the more time an attacker has to work at calculating that private key, right? If you're changing your key a lot more frequently, the attacker has to work fast or the key's invalidated before they even get it. And that's one of the secrets behind Let's Encrypt, where Let's Encrypt is a maximum key length... uh, of 90 days, I believe. Do you remember, Justin? 
I can't recall. I mean, their main goal is to also make it easy. So sometimes I'm just like, ah, yeah, it works. Cool, whatever. Well, so Let's Encrypt, it's easy and it's free. And since it's free, they said, well, why not make it renew every 90 days? People can just use an automated script and it'll renew and off it goes. And so you get a really high level. It is 90 days. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Well, with the big security vendors, if you go to DigiCert or uh, GeoTrust or any of those people, uh, they're going to do one year minimum. Right, and they charge a pretty good amount for it. Well, what Google is saying is, look, these longer certs aren't good for security. The only thing they're good for is helping you do an upsell, so you get a three-year sell instead of a one, right? And so they pushed a couple of years ago to get it reduced down to one year, and the various certificate bodies uh, didn't like that, so they they refused it. And so the the maximum length has been 825 days for a while. Well, because uh, they they did actually reduce it down to two years. Well, what Google said is, wait a minute, we control Chrome, and Chrome is like 60% of the web browsing traffic on the internet these days. So if we just set Chrome to only honor one-year certificates or less, they don't really have a choice. They have to stop selling the two years because we're not going to honor it. And uh, when you have like Microsoft Edge that's now going to start using the the, uh, Chromium engine on the back end and uh, and the other browser vendors that are out there like Mozilla – if they all get in cahoots, they can change the standard just through their browser. And the certificate people behind the scenes don't really have a choice. So that was kind of the first shot that was fired, uh, was Google basically doing another proposal saying, look, we're going to cut the maximum life of a cert down to 397 days. So, you know, a little more than one year. And uh, and so the, the various companies that sell certs aren't happy about that. The other thing is they're saying that, look, because HTTPS is kind of the default everywhere, we're going to stop displaying HTTPS in the address bar. And in fact, we're going to go a step further, and this is an article from over on TroyHunt.com, from Troy Hunt's blog, that they're going to take extended validation certificates, right? It used to be that if you went to a site that had an EV cert, that EV cert, it requires you to go through extra hoops for extended validation, so it will show your company name in a green block in the address bar. And what Google is saying is, look, that doesn't actually provide any more security. It just puts this green block up there that people aren't used to seeing anyway, so it doesn't really matter. They're going to stop displaying it. And when that happens, that's effectively going to kill EV certs because why buy an EV cert if you don't actually see that extra visual indicator? So if all that goes away and you're a company that sells certificates, that was a big deal. You know, A regular SSL certificate is like $100 a year, but an EV cert is like $800 a year. So it's a huge upsell, and they don't really have to do any extra work. I've bought a number of EV certs over the years. You have to submit some extra paperwork, which takes them 30 seconds to look at, and they usually give you a phone call just to verify that you, uh, you know, are a human, which they can do marginally well, but that's it. Like that, That's all you go through. It's really, really cut and dry. So that whole market is about to be destroyed, and you know, I have to look at sites like ours over at, at IT Pro TV where we have an EV cert, so... Do I bother renewing it? If the browsers aren't going to show it, why would I pay that extra money if I don't get any extra security? It's the same bit strength as any other cert that I would generate. I'm glad you're the one dealing with this because I'm just <laughs> like, mm-hmm, that's real nice. Is Maybe it, that's why I go with the automated version. Yeah. Is this something that I think we'll, we'll see in court? No. No. You don't think DigiCert and all those will? No, because all this stuff is arbitrary anyway. Right, it's not like there's some law that says you have to do this stuff. Uh, certificates are all based around trust, and so we choose to trust a couple of registrars, a couple of central uh, certificate authorities, and which ones we choose to trust isn't even left up to us. Most of the time, it's usually whoever the browser manufacturers are. 
uh, and it's all international. So I, it would be really weird to see a lawsuit pop out of this one. Uh, I think at the end of the day, the certificate vendors are just going to get screwed. And honestly, I, I've always felt they charge way too much for that stuff anyway. Uh, Let's Encrypt really proved generating a certificate is a trivial thing. And we shouldn't be paying more than five bucks for a cert. And it should just be part of our inherent nature that everything is getting encrypted this way. So honestly, it should be free like, like Let's Encrypt. Do these browser people not remember how mad they got at Internet Explorer back in the in the 90s? It's full circle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, how are they picking these numbers? 825, 397. Oh. So a lot of times what they're doing is they're adding like one month and one day to account for uh, leap years and stuff oh, like gotcha, that. And they gotcha. do 32 days. So if you take, what's 365 plus 32? Yeah, it's not 397. So, you know, that's how you end up with those numbers. There you go. Uh, and they have to do 32 days because, you know, there might be a leap day in there and then they don't know if it's a 31 day month. And that's, that's where you get there. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I mean, without. I was just like, nah. that's odd. Yeah. Random. Just random number, 825. Yeah. There's a dartboard. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. What, what was the other number? 825, was... right? But if that's so, they would be 730 for... for two years, and then would they add 64 days? Yeah, 825. I'm guessing. What's 825 minus? No, they would have to add 35. <laughs> I don't know. Math. Math <laughs> no, sucks. <it's>, so, <laughs> so 365 times two, 730. I was told there would be no math on the podcast. Yeah. That's 95. That's why I'm I here. I don't, I don't understand how these numbers work. We reverse engineered the other number, though. That's pretty decent. Yeah, I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah. that. And if that's an argument for it, math's easier with smaller numbers. There you go. True story. Yep. Unless it's pi. Yep. Well, we're going to disregard the the oddities, like <laughs> irrational and transcendent. Imaginary numbers. Yeah, all those things. All right, our next article over on <laughs> Wired.com. <laughs> Finally, a YubiKey to kill your password clutter on your iPhone, and I'm assuming that's because I'm looking at this, and it has a lightning uh, adapter here on the YubiKey. So what does that look like, lightning and USB-C on the other side? Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of funny. Uh, I, I love YubiKeys. I use one myself. Uh, I have an NFC-enabled YubiKey, which when I had an Android phone was great because I would just tap it to the phone and I could use it iPhones have NFC also, but Apple and YubiKey have not been able to come to common ground and make it where you can use it there yet. Uh, so I've not had a way to plug my YubiKey into the iPhone, so I can't, can't use it there. Well, one challenge that we have now is the iPhone is using a lightning connector, and the iPad is using USB-C. Or if you buy a MacBook or, or most computers these days, they have USB-C. So how do you find one YubiKey that can work with all of these? Well, they've had a new design. This was actually announced a few months ago, but they're, they're just now getting to where we can buy them, uh, where they have, like you see in the picture here, where it's USB-C on one side and it's lightning on the other. And I was just just this morning, because uh, we, we had picked this article a couple of days ago, uh, but just this morning I was thinking about, man, I remember when I had a uh, Samsung Galaxy S8 phone and I had an Asus Android tablet of some sort, and they were both USB-C. And so on my nightstand by the bed, I just had USB-C cables. I could plug in anything, charge everything. It was all one connector. And then I switched over to an iPhone, and I've got lightning on the phone, but USB-C on the iPad. And so I get different cables, and it's annoying. Wouldn't it be nice to get down to one cable? Well, you can't, right? So this is supposed to help you kind of fix that with the, the USB key, or with the uh, UB key. But, but just this morning, I did a Google search, and sure enough, we turned up this article over on Tom's Guide, 
iPhone 11 will ship with USB-C charger. Now, that charger word is a little strange yeah, there, but... should be noted, this is a report. This is a, an a rumor. unconfirmed right. rumor ahead of these, uh, what, September announcements? Yeah, it should be coming next month. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the cool thing here is that we might actually be nearing a world where your iPad and your iPhone and your MacBook all have the same connector, which has never happened. Like, we've never had it where all three devices yeah. had the same connector. Except for in Europe, right? Uh, well, they've never made a MacBook with a lightning connector. No, um, well, in Europe, they, don't they have the iPhones? Don't they have to have USB-C? Oh, I don't know. Do they? I, I believe they did because of the uh, our researchers that on it. RHOC or some yeah. kind of environmental thing? Yeah. I know there's a big deal about the wall plugs and how they, they want yeah, to— they're different than here. Well, well Have they, you noticed? They, they, they also have a different power grid <laughs> yes, system. Yes, they do. So. Yeah. No, but I'm pr I'm pretty sure um, that that there's a requirement that that iPhones over there do not have a proprietary. I don't think anybody's allowed to tell Apple what to do. I think Apple does whatever they want. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, Apple and CenturyLink team up, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> World's <exactly>. over. <laughs> we are. We, like you know what? We, we don't have to pay taxes. Uh. <laughs> so so this article was really confusing to me though. Which one? Uh, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. All of them. Uh, that one about the uh, the cable. So uh, because okay. it's it's not saying it will have a USB C port. It's saying it will come with a USB C charger. And I was like, does that mean that it's a lightning port on one end and it goes to a USB C to it plug could. into my thing? Because, because it it keeps saying USB C charger as opposed to port. Yep. Well, I'm and wondering. So the uh, the the leak here, if you kind of look down. Uh, came from a Chinese contact. And it's always reputable when it starts with an emoji. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm wondering if, uh, if, if it's like a translation thing. Oh, this could be. You know, so it could mean the charging port. It could mean that it actually has a USB-C port on it. I, I hope it does. I hope the iPhone 11 has a USB-C port because so far no other feature of the iPhone 11 has any draw for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that would be like the only reason to upgrade. So there's a couple of old news articles, almost exactly a year ago, um, where it was talking about the EU um, thinking about forcing iPhone chargers to be uh, uniform. Mm -hmm. And then I can't verify whether this is a legit site. It says that Apple lobbied to delay that change. No. Who would have <laughs> thought, right? Uh, but all I can think is I now have to have USB-C earbuds. I'm sure it'll it'll ship with an adapter. <laughs> yeah. It's so an adapter just, USB C to lightning and then a lightning yeah, to it's, it's just like a foot of dongles. Well, yeah, I'll tell you. So we were we were in Las Vegas uh 2 weeks ago for the CompTIA ChannelCon conference and on the plane I was listening to an audiobook on my phone and I had my lightning to headphone adapter so I could plug that in for my noise canceling headphones. And about halfway through, I was like, all right, I'm going to watch some movies on my iPad. And I broke out my iPad, and I forgot that it wasn't lightning. And mm. so I went to plug in that adapter. I was like, crud, I don't have the USB-C to headphone adapter. Um, I went to a store just you know on the Strip in Vegas, and they wanted $20 for the adapter, and I, I refused to pay that much for it. Uh, and so I went to the official Apple store, and it was just 9 bucks. So Apple has actually been pretty good about keeping the price of their dongles down because I think they got some bad press, but eventually that's going to stop. Uh, so at least the dongle's not that expensive. There's there's a little upside to it. Yeah, that's Yet. a great silver lining. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, it's not too expensive. Okay, yeah. great. So, so uh, yeah, I like how they say that Apple went and uh, lobbied against it. So basically, Apple went over there and said, "Look, do you guys want to maintain your autonomy? Yeah. Do, you, do you still want to you know, be able to vote for stuff? Because otherwise, <laughs> we're going to take it's about you to over. get serious." But they yeah. said, "We could just take the iPhone back to America <laughs> with us." Oh, you want it? Okay. Uh, so at least we won't have to wait long on this because uh, it is September 10th is when uh, the next. Announcement is when they're expected to release uh, and unveil the iPhone 11. So mm. uh, I'm sure we will have more rumors uh, in the next couple of weeks of it's going to have d- triple screens and fold. And If it has a touch bar, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be upset. I hear it's going to be the greatest, fastest iPhone ever manufactured. Oh, man. Ah, man. Do, and do there's going to be an iPhone 11 mini mega micro max where it's mm. actually just the same phone. They just added a bunch yeah, of words got, to like, it. like red on it or something. Yeah. Uh, how many versions has there? Let's say I have an iPhone Seven. I'm having trouble keeping track of how many versions there's been. Well, you've had is, the it, seven, is it a legit seven four? Plus. Because there was there an iPhone Nine? No. no. Well, no, but there's more because there the there was the there was the eight and the ten that came out at the same time, and then there was the eight S and the ten S, and then the ten ten R doesn't count as a separate one though. No? It's just okay. a cheapy one. Uh, so the S's kind of mixed things up. I don't think there was a 7S, right? Didn't they skip that one? I don't think they did. Because uh, there was like a 6 and a 6S. There was a 7. I feel like they went right because they did 8 and 10 at the same time. I Maybe. 7S. Mm-hmm. feel like there wasn't a 7S. I could be wrong. 7 uh, plus. No. So so there have been like several iterations. So it, it's actually more like five or six versions since then. So hmm. you're, if you're still on a 7, you are... Uh, uh, you, you're causing a single tear to run down Tim Cook's face. <laughs> you still don't have animojis? You can't make your face into a robot? You don't have 3D touch? It's How do funny. You get like oh, it. they're removing that, by the way. <laughs> it's borderline. It's borderline I'm going back to Nokia brick phone, so I'd only have to charge it once every Well, I heard days. the new two-screen razor coming out soon for $1,500. Does it have a touch bar? <laughs> Three of them. Oh. Yeah, three of them. Yeah. It actually has one you can stick on the side of your face. And you just like slide it. Uh, all right, let's head over to NPR. I don't know if we've ever had a story from NPR.org. Uh, you need to use on, your NPR voice bunch, when you yeah. read the headline. Oh, it's going to be very slow. Yeah. 22 Texas towns hit with ransomware attack in new front of cyber assault. I'm Peter Van Rysdam. How's that? Four I couldn't hear your breathing, though. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. breathing. It was in there. If you have to turn up I the, think our compressors uh, cut that out. Uh, if if someone's your... listening to this while they're driving, they probably just ran off the road. They're like, yeah. it's getting weird. i gotta, I got to pull over. It's getting weird. Yeah. So 22 Texas towns. Pretty odd that it is specific towns. So that immediately tells you there's a connection. And if you start reading into it, it turns out that these towns were all using a managed services provider. And we talked about this last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago where an MSP got hit uh, where the attackers broke into the MSP network and then they used the MSP's own tools to push ransomware out to encrypt three of their clients. Uh, and so that was pretty bad. Well, now that's turned into a full-blown business model because they broke into an MSP in Texas and managed to encrypt 22 rural towns. Now, governments are turning into a huge target for cyber criminals. Uh, if you work for a private company, you know, private companies don't normally talk about when they get hacked or whatever, but Governments do, uh, especially city and and, uh, county governments. And so attackers are learning that not only are these places not prepared, 
Uh, they also have money. They have tax revenue. They're willing to pay to overcome it, and they don't worry about their public image. Uh, so, you know, corporations worry about PR a little bit more than, say, your city or state government. So, uh, so in this case, this is a new front of cyber assault, according to NPR. Uh, these towns, most of them, uh, either just don't have the resources or, or money or, or whatever to recover from this, and will likely end up paying the ransom. Some have said that they're not going to. The uh, attacker, it is one attacker or attack group, mm-hmm. uh, and they're demanding $2.5 million to unlock the files. I'm not sure if that's so across the board. all the cities Probably. or if that's each city. I can't imagine all of them. Yeah, when you think um, of the going rate, it's kind of been set. But the uh, the onset here was very, very sudden. You know, Normally what happens with ransomware is one machine gets hit, and then it spreads to another and another. So there's a spread, right? And if, if you catch it or if you're running like host-based intrusion protection software, uh, antivirus even, maybe it ca- catches it and stops it before it gets too far. But in this case, because it was pushed with the management tool, they were able to whitelist it in the antivirus <laughs> that was used across all the machines and push it out simultaneously. Yeah. All the machines locking at roughly the same time. So just all of a sudden, your network goes away. And uh, so that's a pretty devastating attack. And just, I mean, we're we're effectively at war right now, uh, That or at least we're under attack uh, constantly with cyber criminals like this. Well, what's interesting here is I've seen I see two of these cities, uh, as you read down, uh, Keene, Texas, with 6,100 people, and uh, Borger, or Borger, Texas, uh, with 13,250 residents, both uh, say that they cannot accept utility payments for many of its residents. And that makes me wonder if residents are coming to the meeting now going, yeah, I vote uh, we don't pay yeah. the ransom. We'll just, so we're why, good. Why didn't we have free electric before? Because yeah. seems like it's working fine. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah I'm, I'm happy. So obviously there's, we're reporting on it, whatever it may be. There's a recent uptick. I, just for some reason... When was the first like ransomware attacks? Like when did this become like? D- do either of you know when this sure. became like a legitimate business? So skill? ransomware is like a random thing started five or six years ago, right? Uh, and just as somebody wrote wrote it, threw it out there, uh, and then they had the idea of actually charging you know real money, which happened really really fast. Uh, and you just had individuals that were paying it, so it might be fifty dollars or three hundred dollars, right? A, computer as opposed to like a network right like you would get ransomware on your laptop yeah, and, yep. and, and pay uh mike mike roderick over at itpro tv uh his dad got hit it was probably six or seven years ago with one of these mm-hmm. but it was just kind of a random thing it wasn't really until uh the whole eternal blue right where there was a, a vulnerability that was known on most windows machines at the time that weren't patched that people said, wait a minute, if I write my ransomware to take advantage of this, I can hit tons of machines. And the rumor is the Soviet Union weaponized that against the Ukraine when they did the, I, I keep saying Crimea. Soviet Union, it's not Soviet Union anymore, yeah, Russia. it's Russia. So <laughs> Russia, you know, <laughs> great day, everybody's hitting their... Uh, oh, oh, wait a minute, I so, thought I didn't have it. So uh, so when they weaponized it against the Ukraine, when they grabbed the, uh, oh, what was the region Crimea. called? Crimea, yeah. Uh, that Crimea River. That people looked at it and they said, wait a minute, yeah. we can target this. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what they're doing now. And you can change it so that it's unique. You know, you just modify the keys. You can redeploy the code is out there. You can buy it on the other dark web, uh, which I'm sure is on there Thank too. You. And uh, and then, you know, we have we have a great cryptocurrency system set up with oh, Bitcoin man. where you can get anonymous payment. Like the whole business model has been made 
for these people to get rich or die trying. 50 Cent is not on our uh, <laughs> yeah, not. Uh, buzzword bingo. D- does 5G and 50 Cent, are they close enough that Ooh, I can count that it? That is pretty yeah. close. Like, there's a little line that separates those <laughs> oh, two. Oh, look, for um, shame. Yeah, it looks like so, 50 to me. So if I had to name a point of where this became weaponized as a money-generating thing, I would say when uh, NotPetya spread across the Ukraine, or Petya. I don't know, whichever variant it was that hit Ukraine. Well, we saw uh, last week or the week before we talked about North Korea and how much it was saying that they had uh, had made b- yep. by doing now, this Now, most well. of their money wasn't from ransomware, though. It was from specifically targeting the Bitcoin exchanges. Yeah, right. So okay. they're attributing, like, the bulk of the exchange hacks to North Korean activities. Well, I would be shocked if they didn't have their hat in the ring here. So Yeah, why not? Um, they got a lot of hats. But, yeah, this— I've seen uh, the pictures. They're all wearing hats. <laughs> They are. Yeah, well, the, the, it's cold. It's always soldiers when you see pictures yeah. from North Korea. They're all in, like, true. perfect uniforms. Uh, well, they better be. Have you seen the list of haircuts you're allowed to get there? Yeah, it's like five, right? Yeah, there's like five men's haircuts. There's a state list of haircuts? Oh, yeah. Yes. I did not know this. Yes. Oh, no, yeah. We learn something yeah, new every day, right? search for that while I bring up this next one here. Oh, um, bring it up here. <laughs> oh, yeah, the podcast. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, our next one over at threatpost.com. Backdoor found in utility for Linux and Unix servers. And so this is a different kind of utility. We're not talking about the kind that can't accept payment now. Yep. This one uh, this one stung a little bit uh, because a vulnerability was found in the Webmin utility in Linux. And I like Webmin. I've used it for years. And I, I never use it on production machines, but I use it in, like, our, our shows and, you know, just for, like, little side projects. It's a web-based GUI that lets you quickly and easily manage Linux servers. So you can install services, add user accounts, uh, format a hard drive. You can do all sorts of stuff from a little web portal on your uh, your Linux box. The problem with it is it's a very small project. It's run by one person. And uh, while it is open source, it does take code. Uh, you can do pull requests and things uh, to submit changes to it. It is ultimately maintained by one person. And it turns out that way back in 2018 a malicious actor actually inserted backdoor code into version 1.89. And since then, version 1.9, version 1.92 came out, uh, all of them carrying either the same vulnerability or newer ones. And the uh, the project uh, champion, Jamie Cameron, uh, he came out and said, look, this was not an accident. Somebody compromised our, our server where we stored the source code because it, he was pushing the code to GitHub but the packages weren't being created from what was in GitHub. They were being created from what was on their local repository, their local machine, and that was what got compromised. And so the attacker put the malicious code in there specifically to say, look, if somebody has a webmin server, I can now go and hit the password reset functionality and exploit that to then have full root access to the underlying system. Uh, and so that's a that's a pretty big, uh, a pretty big system because it's like an instant breach that if somebody knows you're running Webmin and they can access that portal, they can now exploit your machine. And for me, I never allowed access to Webmin to the outside internet. It runs on uh, TCP port 10,000 by default. So I always blocked that on the firewall so that somebody would have the VPN in to access it. But if somebody can just get access to the network through any of your machines, any of your different pathways, then they might be able to hit that port 10,000, and even without a password, they can go in and exploit the password reset and get in. There's a few other little criteria that have to be met for the the exploit to actually work, but it's a pretty big deal. So if you're running Webmin, you absolutely need to update, and you need to start checking your audit logs to make sure this wasn't taken advantage of. Whoops. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, that's. If you watch so, our Linux Plus training, yeah. like I, I, we we actually use Webmin as an example of installing oh. it on a machine. So yeah. And uh, I've used it with Daniel, and it pretty slick utility. I always get weary whenever there's management stuff that's like network based and it's running Runs somewhere. Runs root. Yeah. Ah well. I run everything as root, Don. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Is root. that wrong? That's my not? login name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, my login password. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's root, root. But I put zeros. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Zeros, so, yeah. So I'm not an idiot. Exclamation point. Root. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Our last article before we get to the interview here. Uh, this one is on bleepingcomputer.com. Phishing attacks scrape branded Microsoft 365 login pages. And so... I, maybe I'm not understanding what they mean when they say scrape the pages, but isn't this what they normally do, where they, they make it look like uh, a real login page? So, yes, uh, but what's really tricky about this one is Microsoft rolled out a new authentication scheme that's part of Azure, and it allows a tenant, so anybody, like I can, I can sign up for an Azure account right now, mm -hmm. I can create a web application, and I can leverage Microsoft's authentication service, right? Uh -huh. And if I do that, the authentication window that pops up is branded Microsoft. And so I might scrape somebody else's page, right? Like Facebook's homepage or whatever, right? And so now I can make my server look exactly like Facebook's. But if somebody goes to float over the login button, they're going to see that it's not Facebook and they're going to know it's a problem. But if they leverage Microsoft's sign-in service, they'll float over the button and they're going to see Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And while they know they're on a Facebook page, if they're authenticating with a Microsoft account, that makes sense. And so then they punch in those credentials, and on the back end, it's just you know siphoning those credentials away and compromising your account. That's a big deal. And uh, I imagine we're going to see Microsoft act on this pretty fast because the solution is fairly simple, which is to uh, to basically not either either one not include their logo on the thing, which is not really all that effective, or two to basically not hand credentials off to the back end that if it's all tokenized access like it's supposed to be, which would be a pretty big change for that uh, that login service. We'll have to see. But it makes it a lot harder to tell whether or not the page you're looking at is actually a scammed page or not. So you really need to be checking not just the URL of your, your login form, because that's not going to be uh, a red flag anymore, but the URL of the page that you're actually on. So is it like a man in the middle then? Like how are they actually getting the the information if, uh, if it does say it it's actually going to Microsoft. be a man in the middle but you know once once you authenticate even if Microsoft just sends you the token code well you've now got the token and so you could then turn around and do things with that token while that session was active and and you'd be fine uh, I mean they can proxy the whole session from there and be a true man in the middle if they want or they can uh, I, I I don't actually know how to do this myself, but I've seen this done where they can use, it's either Ajax or just CSS or whatever, to lay another form on top uh, of this transparent, form. essentially. And so the submit button shows one thing, but then when you're typing, it's actually going into another place. So there's a few different ways mm -hmm. to exploit this, and uh, you know Microsoft's going to have to find a way to shore that up. What's interesting here is I read um, the line in here as Microsoft's Azure uh, Bob storage. I was like, oh, they have Azure Bob now? They brought Bob yeah. back. Ah, it's Bob. new, but now it's Blob storage. So. Now, on this page, shame. I don't know if you guys did this or not, but um, their thumbnail that they show, I I just assumed the image was corrupted, and so I refreshed the page like four or five times <laughs> so, until I realized it's just the image. I did that as well. I was like, why is that blurry? So well, they're, they're kind of showing maybe how it could be on top of itself. You know, you could have a, a fake... Uh, 
big thing right on top. But if, if it looks like that, don't log in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, how, the dead giveaway. How, how stupid are these people? Uh, when it looks uh, like that, I always type in my password twice. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I need new didn't, glasses. Uh, didn't work the first time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Let me make sure they have it. I guess this is one of those things where they could just grab that and then redirect you to the legitimate thing, let you go on about your business. But then I also have yeah. like your session token. Mm-hmm. That's how the 2FA exploits work. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, thank you. Oh, shoot. I'm just uh, rattling them all off, aren't I? Mm-hmm. I, I have the free space. Nice. <laughs> you just haven't been paying attention. Oh, wait, you did say I that. I know. Too. I forget. Oh, did you? I don't know if you said that. Anyway. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not say the B word. We have been... Uh, yeah, well, you said, we Hold said on. Bitcoin. I did say the V word. Vulnerable? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it doesn't matter at this point. Oh, I did say you? it. Oh, okay. I'm vulnerable. Oh, you. Sometimes I'm actually paying attention to what you're saying and not just <laughs> staring at my sheet here. So uh, we have been firing up... Um, the satellite in the back and uh, and the ham radio and all this, so we can actually uh, make a connection to South Australia now. Uh, we're going to bring in Joe Stewart Rattray. Uh, she's with Isaka. So let's go ahead and get to that interview right after this, right here on Technado. I'm James Packer. I'm the general manager of Kirk ISS based in the Cayman Islands. We look after IT for banks, governments, and uh, various other organizations around the Caribbean. IT Pro TV for me first was a personal subscription. Used it for a little while, started to like it, then found out there was a business version. I started off with a small team there of about 20 staff. By the time I finished, I had 110 engineers in the field and we had dozens of IT Pro accounts with the guys training. And last year alone, they passed over 40 certs by using the online training. One thing I can say that, you know, you can't, I can't say for any others is IT Pro TV, I've seen it make people pass exams, help them with the virtual labs, the practice tests, and the ability to check your team are actually doing it. So it, it helps you to make sure you're getting return on your investment. One thing I particularly like about it, it lets you know how many times they've taken the test and whether they failed or not. I can watch it even if they're downloading, so even if they're watching offline, I know they've had a go at it. I built this structure whereas each time they passed an exam, they would get extra money within their salary. But it would also work invertly. If they didn't work towards it, they would lose their training account to go to another member of staff who wanted to do well for themselves and the company. Because in technology, everybody knows if you were to take an 18-month break, you'd be so far behind, it'd be incredible. I particularly enjoyed the fact with IT Pro TV, it was easy to use. I could download it, I could listen to it in the car, I could watch it on the train, I didn't have to be connected to watch. And if I was watching it across multiple devices, like my Apple TV in the house, I could see where I was and carry on watching it on my laptop. My current job, running a company in Grand Cayman, I never went for. They saw that I'd added the Azure and the Office 365 cert onto my LinkedIn and headhunted me and, uh, asked me to move out and help them out. I think I can safely say um, without IT Pro TV, I wouldn't be where I was today because I only got this job on the back of the qualifications I have. Welcome back to TechNATO. We now have our interview with us, and I think this might be the furthest away interview we have had yet all the way from Australia. We have Joe Stewart Rattray joining us. Joe, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, I asked you before, I said, how do I introduce you? Because you wear so many hats, uh, you're involved in so many things there. But um, the, the important ones that we want to talk about today, you're a former international board member with ISACA, and uh, you are a founder of She Leads Tech, which is an initiative um, from ISACA. So just for starters, let's, let's talk about kind of how did you get to your role today? A lot of the people that uh, listen to our podcast are, are getting started in tech and like to hear kind of those, those origin stories of, of 
how you got to to where you are i was going to be a doctor <laughs> seriously i thought as a kid that's what i really wanted to do and then i actually went and, and uh, stayed on a on an aunt's farm and saw what happened when they killed the chicken that was the end of me i said no more what can i do that's far away from that so the technology began to be of interest and so from that point on it looked like it was going to be technology but i also had a really a real interest in psychology so i kind of blended the two for a long time and and did some um, lecturing and all sorts of things until i actually fell into infrastructure and i absolutely loved it I know that's crazy, but I absolutely loved it. And so it was from that point that, that my technology path was really set. And I had a tap on the, soul, the shoulder at one point to, to, to make the move to CIO, which I did. Then another tap on the shoulder saying, come play in the security space, which I did because in my real day job, I'm a cyber geek and uh, run a, sec a security and technology practice. So that's how I get got to do all of that. But on the ISARCA side of things, that was really about somebody said, why don't you join ISARCA? And so I did. And I realized that this was my professional body of choice and that I was in a fortunate position to be able to network with other people who were in similar fields. It was a one-stop shop because there were research initiatives, there were um, professional development opportunities. So for me, it was a really, it was a great place to, to land. Now, something I was curious about is, uh, you know, ISACA has chapters all over the world, so people can get active and involved in their local chapter, and, and, and a lot of people do. But to then go up to the national level and then go even beyond that to the international level, th there's got to be a huge learning curve because different different countries have different needs and, and different focuses there. So uh, was that challenging, or, or did you view that as just an opportunity to represent Australia? What, what was that experience like? Well, yeah, exciting, actually. And you're right. I mean, you do have to understand that we have 220 chapters in, you know, 180 countries around the world. So that's pretty phenomenal. Um, and so, yes, you have to understand that it's different wherever you are. So for me, it wasn't just about representing Australia. It was about representing Oceania, which is Australia, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. So in itself, three very different countries to represent. So it was a challenge, and I started off in the security space um, on a secure, an international security management committee, and from there worked my way up, and that was about 15 years ago, and then worked my way up to the board and, and uh, um, had the great pleasure of serving seven years on the International Board of Directors. And, you know, with ISACA, it, here at ITPTV, we, we create uh, actually a number of different ISACA courses here, uh, and... I'm always curious about which certifications are popular in different areas because we, we tend to be pretty U.S. centric and think about what's really popular right here. But in Europe, there's a different set of certifications that are more popular than others. So, for example, uh, CISM might be one of the, the bigger ones here. But is it the same in Australia or do you see a, a different focus? If you, see, if you have a look globally at the numbers, the um, certified information systems auditor or size or CISA you guys call it is there's about 146,000 certifieds across the world. CISM would be second with 43,000 and uh, um, C-Risk at 25,000 and then then the, the least uh, certifieds are with the C-Guide. I guess governance of, of um, enterprise IT is something that really is only at a small amount of people are going to ever really be in, a, interested in that and be uh, in the position to certify because you're really looking at the at the uh, senior management and and those looking after governance at, at the C-suite level. 
We, we see something similar with like our ITIL content where, uh, I, actually, I, I don't know how popular ITIL is in, uh, in Australia, but I know in, in Europe it's very popular. Here in the U.S. it's gained a ton of popularity where we have a, a lot of people are interested in that foundational course. We just learned the basics. But right. then all the advanced stuff, is really just focused on IT leadership. And so you see this huge drop-off. It's not that it isn't valuable. It's just that it's not needed by as many people. And I, I guess that governance will fall right. in that same area. Absolutely, absolutely. ITIL is popular here. Um, the beautiful thing with the ISACA offerings, of course, there's COVID. And for, um, my, I was going to say my sins, but that's not true because I've never sinned, of course. Um, but... I uh, chair the uh, International Working Group for COVID 2019. And of course, COVID and ITIL work incredibly well together. So, um, with ITIL, sorry, with ITIL being tactical and the governance and management of IT sitting with COVID. So, again, there's a handshake. Yeah, and I know that uh, ISACA, just as part of the general outreach, is they're looking to help people learn more about. Well, I guess, you know, if we go right to the name, like auditing and controls, right? So better understanding your organization, making sure you've got proper controls in place, which isn't always security, but these days is kind of where that focus is. So uh, do you find like more security professionals are seeking out those certifications or is it still mostly leadership that's going with that? No, I think that's true. I think we're seeing far more security professionals coming our way. And now with the introduction of the Cybersecurity Nexus, the CSX program as well, a lot more cybersecurity um, practitioners, not leaders, are actually coming to us and looking at the foundation courses because that's what they really want. And they're lab-based courses, so they're really uh, appropriate for people who are at the practitioner level, where CISM is, is really more for those people who are at the leadership level. To switch gears a little bit, I wanted to ask, I know you were involved with something um, recently uh, with the United Nations, and uh, I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about, about that with the uh, Commission on the Status of Women that just, it just took place a few months ago, I believe. Yes, it did. My, I was very lucky uh, twice now to have represented She Leads Tech and and Australia, in fact, at the sixty um, second and sixty sorry sixty third sixty second and sixty third sessions of the Commission on the Status of Women at UNHQ in New York. Um, and really, it was because of my ISACA connections and because of She Leads Tech that I was able to be in the first instance part of the official Australian federal government delegation to the UN and. Um, the theme for that year was the empowerment of rural women and girls through the use of technology. Now, I am a rural woman and I sit, I'm sitting in the middle of the beautiful Clare Valley wine growing district as we're speaking, um, which is um, about 70 miles from our closest big city. So um, I guess having that rural background really helped, but also my She Leads Tech uh, uh, background is, is what really took me there to assist um, 193 member states to arrive at a roadmap as to how the world would move forward for the next six years on those particular uh, set of, of items. So it was a very, it was an incredible experience, to say the very least. It was, it was, it was life-changing for me. So there's a number of women in tech initiatives going on uh, that, that we see over here. I, I know in the U.S. there's a pretty big disparity that the, you know, women are underrepresented in IT. Right. And, uh, and, the numbers are all over the place. Some companies are doing better than others. It does change from year to year, so it's a constant struggle. I've never looked at the numbers on an international level. So is is it about the same in other countries, or are, are, are there some countries excelling better than others? Do you know? 
Some are doing better than others, but generally, if we look across the world, you, you can say best case, it's you know 23%. Um, at worst case, we're looking at, at way less than that. But but Australia and the US are pretty much in tandem with one another on the numbers. Um, it's and that's what the goal for She Leads Tech is to address that underrepresentation of women in the tech workforce generally, but also. Uh, more specifically, for those aspiring to leadership, we want to help to get them that those next steps up the ladder. So, so I want to understand a little bit because you've mentioned she leads tech a, a few times. So, so that's part of ISACA and and something that that you helped uh, get rolling there. So, can you tell us a little bit about what that um, what that particular uh, part of ISACA is about, and and maybe how people can get involved with that? Absolutely. Um, you only have to go to the website and you can, the easiest probably is isaka.org forward slash she leads tech uh, and you'll find all sorts of information about the program there. Um, it, we, there are several pillars of, of the program, but we're looking to raise awareness of the situation that face women. We're looking also to um, work with partner organisations to because we realize um as as was just said that we're probably a little bit late to the party on this because there are lots of other people doing it so why don't we join forces with those people who are good in particular areas k-12 is not an area that we generally work in so we would certainly be looking to to work with people in that that um, particular area for instance we also look at um, how we can prepare women to lead how we can give them the confidence to lead how they can um, know how to go forward with perhaps a mentoring or, or champion role with somebody. Um, and of course, education is incredibly important with all of that. So we're also providing opportunities for women to get together. Uh, and in a couple of, we've, when we, as we've rolled out across the world, we've actually inadvertently created safe spaces for women to be able to come together and tell their stories and network without fear of retribution. You know, you mentioned K through 12, and when I think of leadership, I think of you know, people moving into management, and, and it, it didn't even occur to me to, to look at K through 12. I, I was just assuming you were targeting maybe women that were already in the IT workforce and, yes. and you know, how they could become management. Uh, does it make sense to kind of deliver leadership skills at a younger age? Primarily, we are looking at, at women who are already either at student level uh, in, in, in at college or those um, women already in the workforce, absolutely. And we're looking at the whole career tra trajectory from the beginning of a career to the to the very end of a career. But you need to fight. You need to feed the pipeline. So we need to have young young girls who are interested in technology to feed our pipeline. Otherwise, we're going to end up with less and less women graduating from STEM style courses. So that's why I mentioned K through twelve. It's not our uh, it's not our focus currently, but it's certainly, I know in some of our chapters are very excited about working in that space as well to provide the pipeline. So, and we certainly work with other organizations that do work in that space. Uh, I've been sitting here thinking, cause it's funny, you were like, I was going to be a doctor. I saw what they did when they killed the chicken. I had a similar thing with a dentist and I was like, yeah, I can't work in people's mouths, but <laughs> there's, there's those like resounding, you know, moments of, oh, I need to either make a change or do something about this. Um, obviously, we hear a lot about, about the disparity between men and women in technology. Are there any moments that in your career where you went, I need to do something about this that, that led into She Leads Tech, or was it just a culmination? Well, the first moment was when I was seven years old. 
okay, not nothing to do with the chook, right? The chicken, nothing to do with the chicken. <laughs> I was a, I was a kid living in the bush, and I watched a lot of movies. And I saw a movie about Audrey Hepburn where she was working at the United Nations, and I thought, I want to do that. I want to make a difference for other people. So that was one of those aha moments, which I never thought was ever going to happen, right? And it's only 18 months ago that it first happened for me. So I always say dream big and believe. Believe in yourself because it can actually happen. That was one of them. The other huge aha moment for me in my career was when I was going for my first CIO role and and there was someone trying to stand on the back of my coattail because they clearly didn't want me to have that role. They thought that a man would have been better for the role. So that was a real shock to my system I because I had always believed very strongly in merit, and so I had actually thought that I would be selected on merit. As it turned out, I did get the job, even though there was a little bit of dirty work in the background. I did get that role, and it was at that point I decided that I wanted to see more women at that C-suite level, more women in the boardroom. Bring on the lipstick, I said. And, you know, you've been doing this for a little while now. You've been very active on a number of levels. Uh, do you have, like, a favorite success story, some some area where you, you got to see somebody move into that career and be successful? Um, I, I've got lots of them. You know, I, I, so I'm mentoring a number of women, and I've got one woman I'm mentoring at the moment who – had a really rough time for a couple of years, tragedies in her personal life and a very difficult work life. And to see her grow into the leader that she has become in the last 12 months since we've been working together, to me is really heartening. And I think in those situations, we both learn something, you know, and to me, that's the important part because if it, to me, it's a good day if you learn something. Definitely. Well, I, I love this, that that story kind of came full circle and you were able to actually end up uh, working with the UN. So I'm curious, uh, w when you did that, what, what comes out of that? Is that something where it's just, uh, you know, kind of getting together and finding out what's happening with everyone um, from, from all the different yeah. countries? Or are you coming up with, with recommendations for the UN to then enact? It's actually um, uh, two weeks of hardcore diplomatic negotiation where the, you have a diplomatic you have a diplomatic team uh, from each member state and there are 193 member states and the the idea is you start off with some um, recommendations if you like and those recommendations grow because all 193 member states have a bit of a, a bit of a turn at throwing what they want to see into the mix on this whatever the particular theme is then each of those clauses has to be negotiated if you do not get full negotiation, uh, full agreement on all of those clauses, then you have no agreed roadmap or agreed conclusions to move forward. So the theme dies for six years. What happens at the end of this is you, you have an agreed position for all member states to move forward with for that next six-year period. And each year they're held to account. They must come back and make uh, country statements as to where they are on their journey. Now, some countries are going to be better placed on some of those elements and others lesser. So um, there will appear to be a disparity on moving forward, but it's about the fact that they are moving forward. So to me, I, it, it was the first time I'd seen diplomacy up close and personal like that. And I now have the greatest respect for the work that the UN does to get member states to have these discussions about some very difficult topics. Some of them are things like young women who begin to drop behind in school because for in their country for one week a month, 
they they have no they they can't go to school because there is no sanitation for them because they have become a woman. Yeah, I I, I imagine that's that's got to be a, a difficult conversation to have with that many countries because you have some countries that are in a good place and trying to get better, and some countries where women don't have access to to schools or or uh, you know some of the basic things like that. So um, so I, I mean, how do you even start a conversation like that when? Not everyone is is at that same playing field, that same level. It it becomes hotly debated, um, and it is hotly debated. And that's when sometimes the 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 group of four hundred and fifty people in the room will break down into bilateral and multilateral discussions um, to try and arrive at a position to move forward. It is it is difficult, but you know one of the things that is very coming across very strongly is that the use of technology is of great great assistance because it empowers women and girls through the that use through potential to be educated potential to be to remain safe by the use of a mobile phone or a cell phone uh, and and of course to connect with their markets as well so they can be entrepreneurial and actually uh, be financially empowered as well well joe thank you so much for uh for taking the time to let us know about this and and, and for for doing that work i mean i know that uh you know it, it's the culmination of a dream for you but it's also uh, hard work and uh, and something that that is definitely very important. So so I want to say thank you to you for uh, for taking the time to do that. Are, are you are you planning to uh, to participate um, with that same council in in the future, or or is that kind of just depend on on who's nominated to go? I'm actually working at the moment with um, uh, our the Osaka manager of corporate programs, uh, looking at how we do move forward because this next year coming up is an incredibly important year in in uh, the in the women's rights field. It's called Beijing Plus 25. It's 25 years since Hillary Clinton in Beijing made that amazing statement that women's rights are human rights. So now we're going to have to look at the where have we actually moved and how far have we moved in those 25 years and where do we go from here to ensure that that it's not another 213 years before women get equality across the world. So we are working on that. Great. Sounds Sounds like a, a, a difficult task you got ahead of you, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Because, it, it, like I said, you're you're wearing many hats there, and uh, and and you're a very busy person. So, uh, thank you for taking the time with us today. And if people want to learn more about She Leads Tech, you mentioned the the website earlier. Uh, can you connect with your local chapter from that? Absolutely. Go if you go to the isaka.org website, you'll find that you can look up all the local chapters are there. And so you can connect with them through that. You can also connect through to the, um, so that would be isaka.org forward slash chapters or isaka.org forward slash She Leads Tech will take you to the She Leads Tech area. All right. Well, thank you again so much. And thank you all of you for joining us, but stay tuned because we have more Technado coming up right after this. Are you a career changer or a budding tech pro who's looking to start their career in IT? I'm Wes Bryan, and along with my fellow IT Pro TV edutainer, Cherokee Boos, we've just shot a new show just for you. Each week, we'll dive into topics to help you launch your career in tech. Watch how to get started in IT on YouTube now. Just head to youtube.com forward slash IT Pro TV to watch and look for new episodes every Saturday at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. All right, welcome back, and thank you to Joe for joining us. I know it was uh, late for her, uh, early for us. We we're like, what? What day is it there? I did, yeah, and, and it's winter. Yeah, it, it's the future. <laughs> it's cold. It was 
very confusing, but uh, but we did learn a lot, and that was uh, cool to hear about all the work that she has done um, for women in tech and for ISACA in general uh, with the UN, and hopefully we'll continue to do. So that is great. Hey, before we let you go, I um, want to let you know about some upcoming webinars. And it's interesting because, Don, you mentioned uh, when we were talking about the news, a couple of things. We were talking about ransomware for a while. Uh, and the next one we have is ransomware, is your company doing enough? So avoiding costly exposure and payouts. That'll be uh, you and Daniel Lowry uh, on Thursday, August 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you can check that out over at itpro.tv slash webinars. You can also see our old webinars there, including one about uh, – Eternal Blue, which we talked about today uh, as we talked about the history of ransomware. And we've got some more uh, coming up kind of in that security vein as well, as well as all the um, things we got there, ITIL, PowerShell, all that great stuff over at itpro.tv slash webinars to check that out. Yeah, and we actually have another ransomware one, September 12th, that is focused on MSPs. So if you work for an MSP and you hear all these scary articles, be sure to check us out on September 12th. I hate to say, but I feel like we're like a week late on that one. Which week? Well, I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, an yeah. MSP in Texas going, you couldn't have done this. What's, uh, the, over, oh, yeah. what's yeah. the over-under that we'll have a ransomware article next week? Oh, I, yeah. yeah pretty high. And I don't think it's all going to be fixed by September 12th, so I think we'll true. be all right. Uh, real quick, <laughs> is ransomware in our pool of buzzword bingo words? You know, I don't should know if it is, but it should be. Yeah, Because that, it seems to be a thing. pretty consistent like uptick in... in Words associated with ransomware. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, words like fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or employed, like robotic, are departed. I don't know. Um, well, people don't die from ransomware. Yeah, so I was getting ready to ask you. I was getting ready to ask. I was trying to did anybody get? Did anybody get bingo? You did. I did. Just now, by Peter saying you got, robotic. You got sympathy, pity, bingo. I, I did because none of us had bingo. No, nope. uh, robotic, not. Linux, cryptocurrency, vulnerable, and free space. Yeah, I was a zero day and container away. Well, if uh, I count the words that I said, I got bingo <laughs> with no free space. So bingo the hard way. Well, luckily that's not how we play this game. Yeah. Uh, also, I want to let you know about a special offer from IT Pro TV. Uh, if you head over to go.itpro.tv slash technado, uh, you can find a coupon code there for 30% off your uh, your membership. Also have information there about business plans and pricing, and you can set up a demo uh, for a team trial. Uh, that's at go.itpro.tv slash technado. Hey, we're doing something a little special next week, guys. Um, we're, we're still confirming the location, but the studios here at IT Pro TV, where we film this, are closed next week for some, some upgrades. Upgrade. Yeah, doing a lot of new equipment. Um, same cameras, but new switchers and um, you know, reconfiguring and stuff. But uh, we, we might take this show on the road. What do you think? You'll go to, go to Justin's house? No. No? That's okay. a big no. We'll a <laughs> Unless you're park. talking about a different Justin. Might be at a, at a bar. Justin Timberlake's uh, yeah, Oh, we will go. We're going. And we'll have to see what he thinks about my 50 cent versus 5G. Yeah, so we're going to see if like a, a local bar will have us or something, and we're going we're gonna to take this show on the road and uh, and have a, a really fun, well, this one's fun too. <laughs> uh, Painful podcast. A more have. funner. Uh, a more uh, funner. More funner. Yeah, I but, love two comparative words together uh-huh. like that. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. That mean, that, that's how you know you mean dying. business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was a math teacher, and I'm still upset about that. <laughs> all right, well, thank you all of you for joining us, and we will see you next week from somewhere. Uh, But that's going to do it for us today on Technado. See you next week.